So hello and welcome again to Contemporary Spiritual Life by Rate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and today we're going to explore some of the issues around one very popular form of spiritual practice in today's world and something we've talked about quite a lot already in the series and that is Buddhism. And in particular what we're going to try and do is uncover some of the tensions and some of the possibilities of being a Buddhist practitioner in a non-Buddhist culture such as here in Australia where we are. And to help us in this rather thorny task, we're very happy to be joined by Freeman Treblecock, who has a, a rich and also a rather unusual history with Buddhist practice. So Freeman, uh, thanks for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you very much. Now, um, I just want to start by asking a little bit about your connection with Buddhism, which I think is pretty deep. Mm-hmm. It started pretty early, is that right? Yes. So... Um... So I was born into Tibetan Buddhism. My mum first got involved with Lama Yeshi, Lama Tubten Yeshi, in 1976. So in 1976, uh, Lama Yeshi, Lama Tubten Yeshi came to the country, uh, and my mum uh, was there at one of the first courses at Chenrezig Institute. In fact, she arrived at Chenrezig the day the electricity was switched on. And so even though I wouldn't say that she's one of the like founding members of, of that tradition in Australia, she's, she's deeply connected with its roots. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was a nun with Lama between 77 and 79 and then disrobed and had my brother and me. And when I was young, I showed an interest in Tibetan Buddhism. So it was around us, but my brother hadn't shown any interest mm-hmm. and um, I had. When you say you show an interest, what kind of interest was it? Oh, it's so hard to explain. Um, I had dreams. I um, I was into like actually listening to the teachings, I guess. I think also she put me in there. I think a lot of the Dharma parents, because there's a lot of hippie connection. Like mm. there's a lot of looseness to the people who got involved in Buddhism in the, in the 70s and 80s. And they were so keen not to indoctrinate their children that they just let them sit up the back oh, and play. Really? So interest, they're kind of liberal and they just yeah. want their children to think for themselves. Yeah, but as a result, many second generation Dharma kids never got into Buddhism. They might have actually absorbed a bit of the philosophy and a few of the ideas, mm. but they, and so I think mom, I don't know if she encouraged me to do it, but I definitely remember, like I went to the Kala Chakra when I was eight. Mm. Which is in, in, in no in, in Sydney, oh, Sydney right. 1996, um, and like she brought me along, and just I was like wanted to sleep, and she was like just sleep, sleep's the best meditation. So I just slept throughout the <laughs> color chakra, rather than a lot of parents who would like not even bring their kids to something that long and arduous. Mm. Um, so. Like, so you kind of had an interest in those sort of big Dharma events with lots of people and uh, stuff going Usually on. that's what it was, just yeah. because, I mean, well, when mum was ordained, even then there was Geshe Loden, who was the resident teacher. We have like institutions whereby there are resident teachers in Australia. So you can get access to um, these people and these teachings on a regular basis. But when someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama comes to town or... Sogil Rinpoche or uh, Lama Zopa, um, like Zongza Kensei Rinpoche, like when a lot of these really, really special um, teachers come to Australia, you go. And so for me, in the early years, it was th- going to those things. Okay. And then, 
I mean, truth be told, when I was three, I asked to become a monk. And then Lama Zopa said no. And then when I was 12, I don't know where that came from. I don't even remember where that mm. um, impulse came from. That's like a classic tuku, not wanting to impute you in any way. Yeah, That's yeah, like yeah. a classic tuku kind of thing. It's like they show an interest and then they ask to become a monk at a really early age. Yeah, I don't know what that label means because, I, I, yeah, I don't, I'm certainly not, um, no one would call me a tuku. Um, but brought up in Dharma family, mm. had an inclination and got to follow it. That's the way I, that's the way I'd sum it up. But, um, but yeah, so anyway, Lama Zopas ended up saying that it would be okay for me to be a monk when I was 12. Um, which was kind of weird because I wasn't expecting that cause no one gets ordained when they're a kid in the West, in the East, it's totally different. Mm. Um, they chuck you in the monastery when you're five and you're, given Rabjung vows on the first day. So, um, anyway, this is just a little bit about my, my, my background. I was living up near Chenrezig, not at Chenrezig Institute, but down the hill a little mm-hmm. bit. And Lama Zopa was there during the year 2000 um, Chenrezig retreat, the Mani retreat that he was running. And he called us up on Boxing Day, middle of the night, because Lama Zopa never sleeps, he's, he's notorious for it. And said, if you want, come up the hill tomorrow and I'll, you know, give you Rabjung ordination, um, which is pretty special. And we were there with another guy called John, who's from Gympie, um, Chenrezig Institute's in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Um, and John was there looking dazed and confused just like us. And he was, was, he, 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 he was 50, in his 50s oh. and he'd also requested to become ordained. Um and uh, he was, we were both standing there because he must have got the call in the middle of the night like, like we did. And I was there with mum and he was there and he was like, he had this great line. It was like, well, I guess last night was my last beer then. <laughs> um, but so, and I haven't really connected with John since. But so that was my ordination and it was an unusual ordination because it was normally an ordination is done in a small, like smaller ceremony with monks and nuns but Lama Zopa chose to do my and John's ordination Rabjung ordination so it's not a proper ordination yeah. um, it's just the entry um, in at the end of the Mani retreat with other people there um, and it's actually recorded in a book because yeah. they were doing they record all the teachings it's the year 2000 Mani retreat at Chenrezig Institute published by Wisdom Archives so you can read a transcript of it. It's funny. <laughs> so the final epilogue to that is you getting ordained. With yeah. You. So I got ordained and um, with John. Yeah, it's exactly. It's the last chapter, I think. Um, and then from a period of 12 onwards, I just went to high school and lived a very ordinary life. And when a, a llama was in town or sometimes on the weekend just because, but mostly I needed to have a reason, I would chuck on my robes and I would go to the teachings or I would do a retreat or I do. And I didn't, I wouldn't say that I was like a particularly studious or like, you know, like you could say, oh, wow, you've been, you were ordained from the age of 12, but I, it was kind of a part time in a sense, mm. do you know, if I was living in a monastery, which was a possibility, but um, I think mum intuitively knew that monasteries could be dangerous places for young kids. Um, and I think there were a couple of people who had maybe put their Western kids in a, in a mm. monastery in India and it might not have worked out. Um, and so I, she kind of just said, no, nah, I'm not going to 
not going to do that because that's a that's potential trauma right there. Um, so instead, I just lived quite a normal life and did teachings and retreats on the side. And also, my mum, who is quite an eccentric and a very important part of my spiritual journey, um, is a bit of a practitioner, you know. And so she gave me the kind of like spiritual education that you might think that a traditional Lama would nowadays, particularly if you're a Western Buddhist in, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I'm talking, um, the Lamas kind of scoot around and give teachings in one country and another, and that you never get a, a really truly one-on-one -on -one relationship forged with them. Mm. And in my, my, and this is only a view I've come to in the last few years, um, because Tibetan Buddhism used to be nicknamed Lamaism. Like the role, the function of the, the Lama is incredibly important. And I feel like you don't get that because they don't fully know you. They don't know your mind. You don't have that personal connection where they can give you individual instruction that's going to be suitable for you. Right. And so... You sorry, you're saying yeah. your mama took yeah. the role as the Lama. Almost. Yeah, I would say that. It's funny. I've... It's only something I've come to terms with in the last yeah, couple of years is like, because I'd always felt this sort of slight guilt or I don't know why, because there's not even a Tibetan word for guilt. So it's not come from my religious tradition, but this sense of like, I didn't fully do it. I didn't fully, you know, like, and then I was reflecting. I'm like, actually, if you think about it, like I've had instruction from my mum, and I'm not kidding you. Like the per first person I call when I'm freaking out is my mum. Mm. and and not just because you call your mum in desperate times but because she's the one who fully understands my neuroses <laughs> the best um, and so can help me untangle it and find some kind of way through and also her grounding in Dharma and her own you know her own which she got from Lama Yeshi her own understanding is, the, is, is what I'm tapping into so it, it, I think the best way to understand it is like um you know, like they talk about like the best, uh, sorry, for those playing at home, um, in Tibetan Buddhism, um, they talk about like the best, uh, one of the best qualities of a, of, a, of a student is devotion. And the function of devotion is actually to make the student uh, like a, an open channel for the blessings uh, or the, the, the wisdom and the realizations and understandings to come from the teacher and um, so I think the realization of devotion that my mother has has meant that she's been like a channel for me to connect with Lama Yeshi oh, and right. the Tibet and the Gelugpa tradition um, in Tibetan Buddhism in kind of a really authentic way in the same breath are you sort of saying that you didn't feel it might be a bit controversial mm. but you didn't within your own kind of heart and mind or whatever you want to call it you didn't feel like you had direct access in the same way that your mother did to to the Guluk tradition and to the Lamas and you see it's so funny because Lama Yeshi was the same he came for a time but he had t students all around the world and so he didn't stick around in any one place for any one time so I think it, it's I think mum had a sort of similar experience but I would say that just hearing it in her own words the the strengths the strength and the intensity with which she connected with this tradition and with Lama Yeshi particularly um, meant that she progressed very quickly in a very short period of time 
And she was in her early 20s mm. and she was a bit of a hippie and I think she'd tried living in communities in the past and her and her friend hitchhiked up from Turak up to the Sunshine Coast um, to be there for Lama Yeshi. And, and so she found her... I feel like crying. <laughs> she found her teacher at a very... Like pretty... She got really lucky. She found her teacher at a very um, early age, you know. And, and that's something that... <laughs> Um, no, because it's rare. Yeah. Because it's really rare. And most of the time we spend, um, we spend our lives kind of in confusion. <laughs> it's really embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. I think it conveys, you know, what's at stake in all of this, which is a lot of people simply wouldn't understand the power of connecting with a genuine teacher and what that can do. And also how difficult it is to do. And actually, one thing it makes me think of, mm. and maybe this is... Don't worry, I'm not embarrassed. I just, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to burst into tears then. <laughs> it was fine yeah. for me. Um, one thing I've discussed a lot with Ruth, mm. who is on this series quite a lot as mm. well, is whether something has shifted from mm. that time in the late 70s, you can go back a bit, 60s, 70s, mm. into the early 80s, with people like Chogyam Chungpa and yeah, wow. Lama Yeshi and these sorts of um, kind of pioneers of bringing the Tibetan Vajrayana to the West, which attracted those deep, deep, deep students who had a strong, strong commitment to where things are now in the 21st century, where things are a lot more established and institutionalized and there's more of a kind of set template for it all. Mm. Somehow or other, at least Ruth and I keep thinking, maybe something has gone missing. We don't yeah. know what, we don't know quite how to articulate it or whether we're just maybe barking up the wrong tree. But is there, a, do you have any sense about that? I feel that really strongly. Ah, right. Um, I don't understand what it is. I'm still grappling with it, but I'll share with you my reflections on it for sure. Hmm. Um, and I might be wrong. So, yeah. I reckon when beings like Lama Yeshi and Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche... Um, and Dilgo Kensa Rinpoche, oh my gosh, um, came to the West. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama as well. Mm. But because we've still got him, he's kind of adapted over the last sort of 20, 30 years. Mm. Um, but those rare precious ones who came for only a few short years um, to the West, they, I think there was some, uh, something in the water. You know, there was something... In that, our times? Like, i.e. in the culture of... Oh, I, you know, I think... I actually... I was saying this. There was something in the water in Tibet. Oh, right. You know, yeah. like there was something that yeah. like they they brought with them from... Yeah. They had a direct connection to beings who had never been out of the Himalayas. You know, mm. like who... Like, you're talking about in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, you're talking about a thousand years of, like, refinement of a, a spiritual tradition that came out of, you know, the Vedic tradition in northern India, which you is kind of just unparalleled and amazing. And I feel like with those masters who who came from Tibet and were the first ones to arrive at the West, it was like they were they were empowered with like that thousand years mm. and um, kind of extremely pure and what they were bringing. And you, you read about, or you hear about what Lama Yeshi was teaching his students, like shooting the consciousness out of the top of their heads mm. and stuff. And you're like, you would never get that now. Like it would be impossible. Yeah. And I wonder if it's like a, a dilution or, but definitely I think there was something about the purity of the Lamas coming straight across from Tibet 
and the 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 readiness of the students also it would i mean people talk about the 60s and 70s as being such a period of mm. like openness and looseness that maybe things like that could happen because the students were ready yeah because they always talk about the teacher manifesting in relation to the student and how that's a co you know codependent arising situation where the student and the teacher can kind of come to some harmony of understanding but without the student the teacher won't manifest that deep realization so that's one element but there's a second really important element <clears throat> and this in this one i'm going to take a tangent sure so i'm into filmmaking now which we may we'll talk about in a little yeah. bit but i'll just sort of note that for now and um in my research and just following my bliss of trying to figure out what i'm interested in um i've gotten into joseph campbell in a big way and through him i've gotten into the arthurian romances and in particular what campbell calls the great european epic which is the parzival romance uh in arthurian legend and so hard to sum up because it's an epic but in a nutshell the 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 takeaway message of Parzival is when you follow your own true nature um even if it's a foolish nature you'll go right and when you obey the conventions of society or knighthood or do what you think you should do you end up going wrong and that's Parzival's pattern again and again and again mm-hmm. his great discovery is the discovery of compassion and the methodology is and this it says it as as the knights go forth on adventure there's this line where it says um they thought it would be a disgrace to go forth as a group and so each entered the forest where he chose where it was darkest and when the, where there was no path and i think the wisdom of that is really really true and i think in a in an age now where maybe we're becoming increasingly cynical about groups and increasingly cynical about you know the cult like nature of religion um perhaps i thought you were saying phase. something about the nature of yeah. conventions too in the yeah. going back again to the the, the culture or the sub mm. the subculture of the 60s and 70s mm. where there was such a huge sense of throwing away the conventions of ordinary kind of bourgeois mm. life whereas in the 21st century it seems like it's much harder to do that like that the we are coerced into convention a lot more strongly or afraid to break out of it in the same way that the baby mm. boomers managed to do is that part of what you're saying there or am i um right? i think i'm kind of using that as a stepping stone yeah and i'm going to the i'm kind of but i will come to that in a second i'm jumping ahead and going not only have we lost interest in society it seems like you know like capitalist fucked up difficult you know society mm. it seems like we've also although some it feels like we're going through a new 80s it feels <laughs> like like oh, entrepreneurism entrepreneurialism oh, yeah. it's all really exciting and everyone wants to be a business person and you can be successful and woke at the same time it's fucking hilarious anyway um <laughs> but uh stepping stone so that um not only have we given up on so it feels like we've cynically abandoned religion as superstitious and old school without integrating the essential meaning of it yeah. like the fact that like something is a tiny little bugbear for me is like for example we have in melbourne this um place called the abbotsford convent 
It's a beautiful, huge building, mm. which has now become a community sort of, um, what you call it? Gallery, isn't it? It's a whole lot of things, a community um, neighborhood where they have, not neighborhood, there's another word for it, but where they have like restaurant and artist spaces and shops and things. But it's all like community focus, community run. Um, and community has replaced contemplation. And everyone's cool with that. Mm. Everyone's cool with the fact that the, like, you know, like a, a, a contemplative space is no longer like, like necessary for most people. So anyway, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, and I will try and sum up so that there's some useful takeaways, but it's like, given that, and given the fact that we've kind of like chucked the baby Buddha out with the bathwater, and we're not really that into like um, spirituality, I guess, it, like we've become cynical about following a particular tradition. Right now, I think is the time for the European Western idea of the Parzival myth, which is follow your own innate nature. And that's a really European idea as opposed mm. to like a collectivist idea of like a, you it's know. It's quite individualist, isn't it? It is. Yeah. But so, that it's, so we're ready for a kind of approach to spirituality that is just walk your own path. But it needs to be, it's not like loosey-goosey. It needs to be like a, you know, there's this image in, of, they call it the sword bridge. Like you're walking a really razor thin line, but it's your path, you know. So that's kind of what I, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm still grappling with this, as I said, Toby. That's what I feel is like the transition right now, because like, for example, like Lama Osel, who mm. is um, the reincarnation of Lama Yeshi, um, in our tradition, if you believe in reincarnation, um, we recognize, oh, he just calls himself Osel now. He's given up the ropes. And, and he also wanted to become a filmmaker, didn't he? Yeah, he had a filmmaking period. I'm yeah. not sure if he's still doing it. Oh, right. But yeah, so, and he's like, he's doing his own thing. And I think that's kind of cool because you like, you see a person who's living their own life and doing it in their own way. Are you way. suggesting that practicing Buddhism per se as a tradition might not be sufficient? Oh, shit. See, I was never a very good practitioner, so I'm not the best person to ask. But you can just speak your mind. I mean, if that's what you're saying... Sounds like that's what No, 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 no. So, like, for some people, like, Tibetan Buddhism, and don't get me wrong, like, I've benefited so, so, so much from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There's no way I would chuck it out. There's no way. Hmm. Uh, Kensei says, because there's this metaphor of, like, um, in, in the Buddhist tradition of when you become enlightened, you, um, you, don't, need the, you don't need Buddhism anymore because you've reached it. And the metaphor is, like, uh, once you've crossed the river, you don't carry the boat along with you. Yeah. And he, he's saying to his students, you're also ready, you're also interested in like dropping the boat. You're still in the water. I'm trying to get you into the boat. <laughs> you know, so yeah. don't, don't think that you should drop the boat. Yeah, you know, okay. it's super useful and functional. Yeah. But just in terms of walking your own path, um, it feels like maybe that's where we're at. And I, for me at least. Did you have a bit of a maneuver or a pivot away from being a more, um, I don't know how to call it, more kind of traditional Buddhist practitioner? Like, did you have a sort of period sometime where you felt like you needed to stretch your wings a bit? And I found creativity. Yeah. Um, I never like went and dabbled in a, a bit, but always an interfaith education was always part of my upbringing as well. So understanding like the mystical elements of Christianity and Islam and you know, like, 
never was I like, oh, I've been brought up in Buddhism. I'm a Buddhist and I think this because this is what Buddhism is. No, um, it was always the lens, but it was never, it didn't block me out from anything. Um, so I didn't go and say, I'm not a Buddhist anymore. I'm going to try something else. And people sometimes ask me, are you still a Buddhist? And it's like, well, yeah, you can take the monk out of the monastery but you can't take the monastery out of the monk you know i'm still i was certainly thinking that yeah. when i was rustling up the questions i was thinking yeah. is he even a buddhist anymore i remember yeah. the last time i saw him i think he was a buddhist yeah you know it's funny how people you, you want to kind of fix a label on true on people to kind of yeah but uh, for me my heart connection is still with the tibetan buddhist tradition yeah. i can't you know it's in me but so in terms of what i did i got into creativity when i disrobed and at first i like was playing on the piano like just not 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 trained I, I learned to play the trumpet but do you mind if I ask what mm. what was your thinking around disrobing when did it happen and uh... yeah so that's a that's a difficult period because um, I hadn't fully uh, I was still grappling with a lot of a lot of it while I was going through it mm. so there's kind of a period where I um I think you would say that I had, uh, yeah, I basically disrobed, but I hadn't told everybody. Mm. And um, internally, internally, but also because I mean, I've been involved in it since I was a kid. There's, and this sounds wanky, but there are people all over Australia who know of me as the young monk, and so for a period of about two years afterwards, people I was having meeting people, and they would get a shock to see me. And I do. This is like two years ago I disrobed, and they'd be shocked to see me out of the robes and kind of like, who is this person? Um, and, but mostly supportive. I mean, we're not, there's no massive guilt trip. It's not supposed to be something that you do if you're, if you're ordained. Also, I only had rubjung ordination. I mm, never got Getzel sure. and I tried to get, which is, Getzel is considered the novice introduction, the novice um, uh, uh, ordination, but rubjung's just the preliminary to that. So anyway, so that's important to note. And I tried, but I had obstacles along the way. It was really bizarre. Um, and so, what was the question? Well, I suppose I'm trying to get at what your thinking process was. Oh, yeah. Talking about kind of getting into creativity yeah. afterwards. I'm, I suppose I'm trying to press to see whether there was some desire to get some distance from... I guess... Funnily enough, I was living in an interfaith community household at the time. Um, and in, in Turak, a place called Arma, run by an organization called Initiatives of Change. And um, I was around people who were into spirituality. I was seeing different forms of it. Um, I was, look, to, oh, it's difficult to say, but like, to be honest, I just was enjoying... <laughs> I was just decided that I would just actually just enjoy my life. Um, which is why... And we had a little baby grand piano at Arma because it's a massive old building. Like with like a ballroom. Like wow. It's kind of ridiculous because you're living this life of like poverty and community and you're all shopping together. But you're in this Come like to the ballroom. <laughs> ridiculously gorgeous building. Um, so I'd like tinker on the piano a couple of hours a day and, yeah. and just take it... Like... I don't even quite know how to describe that period other than, I mean, yeah, there was a, there was a, there was not a distancing, like I'm going to walk away from this. Mm. There was just like a loosening and, 
um, you know, like experiencing my life. Um, but you've got to remember also, I wasn't like locked in a monastery the yeah, whole yeah. the whole time. So it wasn't a, it wasn't like a, a huge like, oh my god, I've been in a box and now I'm out. But it was definitely like I could let go a lot of the baggage that I'd been feeling, and particularly in that transitionary period, the guilt that I could no longer be a monk anymore. For me, this is really important to note. So, renunciation is an important and a very, very important um, grounding for any spiritual path because it's the place from which you work in which you're actually going to move towards something. Um, otherwise, you're just kind of still knotted up in the same, mm. in the same loops. Um, so... The, the, but celibacy and certain like that's not renunciation the vows are not the same as renunciation mm. renunciation is a certain attitude and understanding of um, what life is and how your attachment and delusion clouds clouds your experience of it so I'm not saying I have any understanding or realization of renunciation but I'm saying just because I gave up the vows I don't think it actually affected my level of renunciation for life I actually think it was more coming in tune with where I'm really at. Mm. And I think most people are really at, you know, like they think about the whole priest scandal, which is the world's going through in the last sort of five or 10 years. I mean, that's a whole nother set of, a set of issues, but, um, you know, like where people, where, where we place monastics and where they actually are. So how we view them and where we place them in society and then their natural humanity are two very different things and they need it's important to reconcile them otherwise fucked up shit will happen mm. you know either internally or externally and but that said some people are suited to a monastic life and mm. it works well for them but even like some people who I've seen like live monastically for 10 years and I'm like you are the perfect monk you know like you are so suited to this then they reach a different period in their life just like you might realize your marriage is not it's not mm. no longer working. It's not the right. See, it strikes me like that the best, the fruits of being a monk and living in the vows mm. are the degree to which you are basically part of a community or institution almost that looks after a lot of your material necessities mm. so that you can just keep your mind focused on <sighs> contemplative matters. Mm. And it's so, you know, so if you're living in a big monastery yep. like Sarah J or something in, in India and like it means you kind of go full time. So your mind is freed up for all this other stuff. But if you're doing it outside of monastic context, it strikes me that you don't really get those benefits. Mm. In any case, you're living just how other people live, but with um, certain vows that you have to uptake. Mm -hmm. And I could see that. So hard. You've got to work. You've got to... Yeah, yeah. yeah you've got to do all the things that other people have to do anyway yeah. without any of the benefits. All the distractions. Yeah. yeah. Um, i just add that, yes, the ideal of a, like a monastic institution is that it gives people time to contemplate. That's the ideal. Mm. But humans are humans, you know, and doesn't necessarily mean that we were meditating all the time. Do you know what I mean? And well, so... Ruth actually interviewed... Do you know Aya Yeshi? No, I don't. Oh, yeah. she's a Shakya nun. Oh, wow. Who works with the Dalits uh, in... I forget where... Somewhere, maybe like Bihar in India. Yep. And Ruth interviewed her for this series. Um, some, of, some of our listeners might remember it. Um, about how much of a struggle it is to be ordained yeah. as a Western woman. Yeah. Um, in that... It's you pretty know, weird. It, yeah. yeah, it's a very unusual situation and it's certainly 
um, not easy in any sense of the word to just have mm. eke out a bit of space where you can just get into contemplative practice. Totally. So she she was talking a lot about those things, mm. and I imagine even if you had the will, say like the um, just name John, the person you got ordained. Mm-hmm. So you know, as a fifty-year-old male, uh, is it going to be that easy to find a spot to live and you know? Yeah, I mean it's not, and lots of lots of monks and nuns still have to um, work to survive. Gatso, Adrian Feldman, who's one of the founding monastics in my tradition, uh, he's been a monk for like thirty-five or forty years. He used to be a doctor. Oh yes, yeah, so I've read some of his work. Yeah, yeah. he. Um, he says that monasteries, because he's a monastery builder. He built a monastery in France called Nalandra and Nalanda, Nalandra, and um, he's building one in Bendigo. Like they've got like fifteen rooms for monks or twenty rooms. He said, I've heard him say that the monasteries won't flourish until those who come into them really dedicate their lives to actually the monastery. You kind of give up your life to the monastery. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't suit the Western approach very well. Um, not that it's not important to have. We sh- it's really, really important to have these places of contemplation for having benefited from them in the past. I would say the two main benefits from being ordained um, for me. One is the, like the liberty to practice and to go to a, go to a, a Dharma center and stay or you know, be there. And, and to feel supported and to have a community around me that was like super supportive, um, that that's amazing mm. because that's like that's the sangha jewel. That's mm. that's that's so precious to have a community of supporters. The other thing, which is kind of weird to say, is but it's so true, and is like proximity. So I got to sit up the front. Mm. I got to like when I was fourteen, I got to be on the stage with the Dalai Lama for a few days. Um, in Mel- when he came to Melbourne. So, you know, sitting five, ten metres away from the Dalai Lama. It's kind of like privileged access. Yeah. yeah. But it's also, it's weird because if you're, it's so much easier to become distracted if you're sitting up the back seats in the nosebleed section. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so it was like, you're sat there, you've got all the bright lights around you. and But also, this is the esoteric element of it, is it's kind of like they do give off radiation. Like, it's kind of like they do... You know, you kind of be by being close to them and seeing the detail and getting a sense that you do harmonize a bit more with the llamas purely by being close to them and being around them, which is why we gravitate towards the llamas. And even just to have His Holiness touch your hand is amazing, you know, it's because there is some, you know, something there. So, so that was like, as a in my in my when I was doing a little bit of like llama hopping, I guess. Like when I was when I first went to Saga Rinpoche's retreat when I was thirteen, or when I first saw Zongsa Kensei, like that was amazing because you get to kind of be up close and personal with these really really special beings, and you you get a little bit more understanding of them. You get a, more of a glimpse into their mind. Is know? there anyone other than your mother that um, stands out as the one that you feel you have? The strongest connection to presently, or that has maybe influenced you the most, or has helped you ripen the most. Lama Zopa Rinpoche, um, if he hadn't been there, I would never have had any of the benefits that I had. Um, 
and he saw something in me that was uh, well, you know, because it's, uh, it's my tradition, the Gelugpa tradition through my mom. It's a connection to Lama Yeshi. Um, like he, uh, I don't know, because I don't know, I don't read his mind. But I guess he saw something in me that was like, it was beneficial to put this kid in robes. <laughs> so I don't know why this is so emotional for me, but it is because like... Um, no, we're talking about the core of yeah, your life and your being. It's true. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I have an incredible amount of gratitude to him. Because I, mean, I wouldn't, haven't seen him even that many days of my life. It's weird. Because he's not in Australia that often, and I'm not one of those people who follows him around the world. Um, but he, um, you know, he was my he opened the door to Dharma for me, and that's incredibly rare. And um, I feel like it would have been so easy to become more lost and confused than I currently am um, if I hadn't had that from a very early age. So I would still consider him like my root lama or my main mm. lama but his holiness the Dalai Lama is the one who you know when you if you have a choice to visualize um you know like the the one who um I feel like for me at least um I mean it first of all a Buddha walking the earth you know like and to have you know and we won't have him for that many more years you know, like, unless he lives to 108, which I really hope he will. But, you know, like, he's made of, he's got a human body there. So, like, the fact that he's been here teaching us, for me, is like, the, the yeah, it feels like, with this Holiness the Dalai Lama, it feels like, really does feel like you've got the Buddha of compassion right there in front of you. Mm. So A lot of people yeah. say that, and, yeah. you know, I'm happy to put my own, my own weight behind that too, yeah. you know, like, because outside of the... Golukpara or Tibetan Buddhist world, it can seem like a very strange statement. People think he's kind of like um, some kind of construct, like a, mm. a, a device of marketing almost, or wow. some kind of political figure that's manipulating people, <sighs> blah, blah, blah. Stupid. But. Meet him. He is the real deal. Yeah. He really is. And um, you hear, if you actually hear a teaching that he gives, you know, mm. it's high quality. Mm-hmm. High quality. And, uh, and he. On his cushion five hours a day. Fuck, if I was on my cushion five hours a day. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that, and, and he's also, when I talked about earlier about these great beings like Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche and Jamin Kenshi Chogulodra, but we never got him. Um, and Dujim Rinpoche and Chogim Trungpa and Lama Yeshi. Like, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is, you know, like not only is he like made it feels like he's made of the same material as them hmm. like in a sense they're all like you know they're all part of the same body it's kind of like you know, it feels like it does feel really like like just i mean it's hard to i'm talking on two levels here so like on a practical level probably wouldn't have heard of Dalai Lama if Lama Yeshi hadn't first invited him out to the west probably wouldn't have heard of Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche unless Chogim Trungpa had first come so you think about these radicals who were going to teach Westerners, Lama Yeshi, Chukum Trungpa, early on when no one else was. Like, they're the wild ones, but also they're like the bridge to these huge mountain-like mm. meditators, these, you know, these incredible beings, you know, you know. And so on a practical level, they've been that, but also on like a, like a substance level, when you're getting a bit of Lama Yeshi, 
you're getting a bit of His Holiness the Dalai Lama because this is what I was talking about with devotion earlier. It's like the it's like the individual person is a little bit emptied out, not in some weird nihilist way, but like emptied out of ego, to the point where their devotion, they become a channel to like the the energy that their Lama is full of, you know, which is ultimately the the source of the source of everything, you know, which is ultimately the final message is it's ultimately your own mind. So, yeah. Are there any um, practices that have resonated particularly through your life that you that you still you, you call them maybe heart practices? Mm. Um, I'm really, dude. I have to admit this because otherwise people are going to get the wrong idea. I'm a really, really terrible practitioner. Like, I don't, I, I don't meditate. Like, I don't, like I'm, you know, I'm pretty, pretty poor. Um. But in my defense, I feel like mm, the Dharma is like in my veins a bit. So that's my cop out. Maybe sometimes is <laughs> like um, I don't really, I don't really get to practice on a daily, on the daily. But it's like everything I do, I hope is permeated with like Dharma wisdom and maybe a bit of bodhicitta. That would be that would be good. Um, so, but definitely it has to. I mean. If you want to talk about the like the the teachings or the practices that have done me the best, I suppose so. Right? Yeah, which well, things have really inspired you? Or I have to say, you? action tantra for me has been it because it's like simple. You can tap straight into it. So I'm talking about the kinds of practices that um uh, that you get in Tibetan Buddhism, whereby you get to visualize yourself. Uh, in a perfect form with the mind of the Buddha and, and the speech of the Buddha in the abode of the Buddha. And so it's a visualization technique whereby you dissolve your everyday, ordinary, contaminated sense of self and environment and invoke through your Lama and through the Buddhas a different um, way of tasting the world. And so for me, that that's... If ever I'm really freaking out, that's where I'll go. And in fact, I kind of have confidence, not that I have any perceptual understanding of this whatsoever, but I kind of have confidence that that's kind of my true nature. Do you know? Like if people were really to ask me and drill down into me, then I'd I'd kind of just have to admit that, yeah, ultimately my personality is just this temporary illusion. And that if you really go in, that, yeah, you've got to admit the fact that your Buddha nature is there. Um, so it's a weird way of saying like... Well, if you know that's there and you can tap into it when you yeah. need to. I don't totally. think it's really that necessary to be doing formal practice. Well, yeah, but that's what that's see, that's the cop-out though because yeah. like this morning I got really angry at my girlfriend for no reason. Hmm. So the contaminated, confused habits are still there on top. So that's, my, that's the issue. That's where I feel like, oh yeah, cool. We, formal practice is good. Unwinding the habits is really good, you know. So, and you also talked. You mentioned uh, via email, and you mentioned also earlier in this podcast about your, like, your huge draw a huge um, amount of inspiration from Joseph Campbell, yep. who was American, is it novelist and lecturer. He was a comparative mythologist. So there aren't too many of those around. No, there isn't. I'd like to be one, but it's hard to read a lot of mythology, and it's good if you can speak lots of different languages, like he does. Um, so I found Joseph Campbell. So when I was going through film school. 
Uh, I did a master's in film and television uh, a few years ago. Graduated two years ago. And um, I was driving a truck and installing water features as a part-time job, Mm -hmm. like working in landscaping. And that meant that I got to spend like two or three hours driving around every day. Oh, right. And so Joseph Campbell's audio lectures are all like really well organized and transcribed. Um, you know, talks that he's given at the Esalen Institute, at the Jung Institute. You know, it, like I've been just basically immersing myself in his audio lectures for a couple of years. And that was, that experience was pretty great because um, you begin, it's kind of like rote learning, you know, mm. when you have, you know, like, you talk about like you know you have the library inside you it's like um teach the the lectures on loop was really great um so through that i was like fell in love with him because his his work is basically first of all he derives from jung hmm. and jung has this connection with um tibetan buddhism so i feel like safe in where his wisdom comes from i guess not that that was ever an intellectual choice but the process of integration that is essential is a Jungian, uh, Jungian idea derived from, you know, Jung's own personal work and some understandings from the Eastern philosophies. But that reminds me, actually, there was a time when you did study psychology too. When yeah, I first I, met you. You were a psychology student. Yeah, I studied. That's exactly right. I studied yeah. psychology at Melbourne Uni, and um, uh, I hated it. It was terrible. Um, uh, my my catchphrase is that um, psychology, the field of psychology, suffers from a personality disorder at the moment, uh, whereby it thinks it's a science rather than an art. Mm. So, I love that quote. I, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, it's yeah. it's ridiculous. It's um it's a shame, but there's lots of money in it, so you should still do it if you can. But the the clinicians get weeded out. I feel like I would have made a great clinician, but I didn't do very well in the stats exam. You know, like well, you do a year of stats before anything, really, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So it's my third it's year stats way to exam. Understand human mind. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah, it doesn't really work. So anyway, so Jung didn't get didn't get taught a bloody a thread of Jung when I was at when I was at um when I was at school. But um to sum to sum up because I don't want this to be forever. So it doesn't doesn't go forever. You should look into Joseph Campbell because as a comparative mythologist, what he's done is synthesize the common themes across various mythologies um, and he describes his definition of mythology as other people's religion which I think is the great <laughs> it's a great definition um, and so by synthesizing it he's found like common themes and these common themes are they fulfill psychological functions um, and so that they're like they're really, really interesting to understand as roadmaps to psychological processes, and particularly in mythology, which is story. And we all know that story is about change and transformation. Um, that's really cool because you've got all these amazing um, roadmaps of like psychological transformation, and also they're written in such a way that if you're a young person, you can read the you can read the myth in a certain way, or if you're an older person, you can read the myth in a certain so interpretive. So as someone who's getting into filmmaking and creativity in a big way to discover Campbell's work it's not like he's I mean he's mainstream like like every writer gets given you know the the hero with a thousand faces you know to read you know and you know Hollywood have have adopted you know George Lucas was the first person to take mm-hmm. Campbell's work and ad- adapt it into the story arc of Star Wars you know so it's it's these are ideas that translate in a big way 
because they tap into universal psychological processes um, and, and roadmaps for, for transformation that work internally and externally, so on yourself and on the world, that are universal. So, yeah, I di- I'm digging that at the moment. Is that shaping your... I mean, you're involved in making a film at the moment. Yeah. You mentioned you're just actually doing the editing. Yeah, yeah, Final we are. Final editing of that before it goes off, hopefully, to Cannes. That's... Fingers crossed we get into Cannes or Venice. Um, we can What's only the name know. of the film? It's called The Empyrean. It's not actually my film in the sense that I, um, I'm a producer on it. And um, I... But I wasn't involved in the, like, the creative development. So... For me, it's my first ever time producing a feature, which is a huge opportunity. Um, but this, the story is pretty weird um, and for, in some ways doesn't really fit me. But it's the themes are the themes are the things that I connected with. The themes of like um, of like life and death and desire and confusion, but ultimately a thread of um, transcendental or transformational love and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, the story itself is pretty intense in the sense that there's sex and murder and intrigue and drama, um, and pretty out there. It's a, it's a, the director, his last film won the special, special, special jury prize at the Horizonte, the New Horizons um, category in uh, Venice, Venice International Film Festival, which is like one of the biggest, one of the top four festivals in the world, and probably the biggest. For European cinema, so the film's very much in the language of like European art house, but we hope that uh, it like translates to because it's the first time also this filmmaker Amiel is working in the States. We shot the film in uh, Oklahoma, okay. um, Oklahoma and Florida, and so we're hoping that the American characters, the the amazing performances, everyone we've shown it to, including some really um, established people in the industry, have have just been blown away by these performances. Um, and it comes from the particular methodology. The, the reason why I'm working with Amiel, the director, Amiel Corton-Wilson, is um, his methodology is, is really cool and interesting, whereby he um, develops the story around real people's uh, experiences. And it's from his background in documentary, because he mm. made a, a, few, a few big documentaries before this. And then doesn't write a script but comes up with some scene ideas and improvises the dialogue on set with the people playing versions of themselves in usually it's a stolen environment like it's not a it's not a locked off set we've got the camera and a couple of other crew members there but everything else that's going on is real nine times out of ten um is that really hard to get right like uh or you just kind of go with the flow a bit and take whatever comes (laughs) We've got 500 hours of footage. Uh, oh, right. um, I mean, you have to admit, it's been shot like an observational documentary. Yeah. And the normal ratio for obdocs is 100 to 1. So for a two-hour film, you'd expect to have about 200 hours of footage. Um, we have a little bit more, but that's because we have also a lot of slow motion. So yeah. about a third of the film is, is super slow motion material. So I've, for me, film like the, the reason I'm doing this film at the moment is um, it's, it's a really interesting story, but it's also an amazing opportunity um, and I'm, I have my own ideas for films that I want to make, but I've also got this mentor, mentoring kind of attitude where it takes a long time. I think if any art form, film might be the, the most expensive and the most Ooh. difficult. <laughs> yeah, I say it's probably true. Yeah, so it takes a long time to get an idea off the ground, and I don't want to be, you know, you only get to make a certain number of films in your whole life. 
So I don't want to be like um, uh, fucking around. Do you know? <laughs> like I want to. I want to. I want to actually learn how to do it. And so for me, getting into producing was a good way that I could work with somebody, understand the mechanics of how a film gets off the ground, and um, ultimately. I, I think also you exhaust just your, your own creative juices after a while. And so to have that, the ability to make other people's films into reality is like you can do both. Is so. that also plausibly a stepping stone for um, sometime in the future where you do have that confidence and the mm. know-how and all of that kind of stuff to exactly. work on your own projects? I've got a couple of projects which I would like to see happen, um, but they're somewhere down the track. Yeah, And, and so I, for now I'm just getting upskilling myself also I've, this might be a funny thing to say on radio because i don't know when people are going to hear this but we're currently in april 2018 and um i'm feeling like i would like to have a pause for a while mm. um this film's been the last 18 months of my life very intense I imagine it being pretty all-consuming all-consuming yeah. and i'd like to press pause for a period and do i'm calling it a retreat but it's not a formal retreat it's. I just want to spend some more time, with with more time on my hands. Yeah, yeah. Time you is know. pretty important and very hard to find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Well, Freeman, it's been uh, it's been beautiful to hear so many different thoughts. Actually, when I think about the terrain we've covered, pretty fascinating. I knew it'd be fascinating. That's why I chased you down. So thank you very much for giving up your Sunday morning to be with Arate House. I'm super delighted, and let me just say thank, like, thank you so much because we met we met a quite a few years ago and um yeah to hear where you're at and that you're that you're making this and also the fact that it feels like you've circled back to me so um yeah i'm just, i feel very like grateful and i wasn't expecting to get as emotional as i was today but it was kind of you um i'm really like grateful to that you've shown some interest <laughs> but i'm also grateful to, to have the opportunity because i find this so beneficial for myself so hopefully there's some benefit for other people. I'm sure there like, will be. I hope that's the benefit my, for us yeah. is that when you're a big Hollywood man, <laughs> we'll have uh, we'll go. We knew him when he wasn't famous or, or that famous. <laughs> Good luck. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, thanks again, Freeman. Stay tuned for more podcasts at aratahouse.com.au.